Please be seated. And please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12. We're now in our series in Hebrews this afternoon. We are returning to our series on gospel worship and consider, um, well, having understood the need for the elements of worship regulated, now we consider the regular principle of our heart in the case in which we are to regulate what we do within our affections, our thoughts, our mind, our soul, in the public worship of God. It's not enough to have the right elements, but instead we must also have the right frame of heart in worship. So we are going to consider mostly 28 and 29 this afternoon, um, but uh, let's see here. Where I will begin reading is um, verse 18 in chapter 12. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy word, Hebrews 12, verse 18. These are the very words of God. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Sion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our God... We come to the preaching of the word to hear a voice from heaven. The word of God as it is preached by we trust the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us not refuse he who speaketh from heaven. Help us to come before you, Father, to hear the voice of God. Help your minister preach only that which is good and true so that the people do hear the word of God and not the opinion of this man. And Father, we pray that uh, all those who will now hear the word would receive it as the very word of God. We pray, Father, that Jesus Christ would be glorified and that as our fear of you increases, Father, our reverence, our reverence would increase and you would be better glorified in our assembly. Would you do such things, Father? So we pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of this congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. question we all have to ask is, what would 
our behavior be like in public worship if we could perceive by faith God as he truly is? If we perceived God as he is and described in the word of God, thrice holy in our text, the judge of all, a consuming fire, first of all, first of all, We'd have to ask the question, if we understood who God is, would we ordinarily miss the summons to public worship when he issues it? But then in the public worship of God, would we be doing things like, and I'm not picking on anybody here particularly, so understand this, would we be chatting with our neighbor? Would we let our minds wander off from God? Would we refuse to hear he who speaks? Would we be drowsy? Would we moan that God's ordinances bore us? Would we yawn as we sang the praises of God? Or instead, would our senses be seized? Would they be seized with God himself? Would our minds and our hearts be gripped with reverence and godly fear as we meet the one here who is called a consuming fire? Friends, what has been really terrible to see taught in the Christian church in recent years is that in the gospel era, reverence and awe for God, godly fear are unnecessary and actually should not be present. That anything can go, that God is not to be feared, and our worship can be as irreverent as we would like it to be. It has gotten so bad, and I'm not joking here, there are literally clowns, literal clowns, in the public worship of God in some churches today, entertaining the goats, amusing crowds in churches, in the public meeting of God's worship. Why? Because we have lost sight of who God is, the judge of all, the consuming fire. And if you think that in some way Jesus has changed who God is, you must understand that is heresy. God is the same. And not only that, your mediator who was in a state of humiliation is now in a state of exaltation. Such that if you saw him now, as you saw, as John saw him in Revelation 1, how did John see him? In the midst of the seven candlestick, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. That is Jesus Christ today. That is who you have come to worship, I trust. And what was John's response to meeting Jesus in this way? And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Even through Jesus, you would have to be a fool to approach God irreverently. And so, our theme tonight concerns our conduct in the public worship of God. To first understand who we are meeting with right now. You're not meeting with me. You're not meeting with the elders. You are meeting with God. In the book of Job... Job was exhorted to acquaint now thyself with him, to be acquainted with God. And so we will be acquainted with God a bit more today so that our conduct in public worship would acknowledge that our God is a consuming fire to be worshipped 
with reverence and godly fear. And we'll consider that theme under three headings this afternoon. First is to consider the danger of public worship. The second is to consider our reverence in public worship. And third, our conduct in public worship as application. So first, the danger of public worship. Let me just say this. Public worship is dangerous. Public worship is dangerous, friends. It will either bless your soul if you come to worship God through Jesus Christ, or it will harm you. That's what public worship does. There must be a sense of that gravity before us as we assemble to meet God. We meet God. You remember when our series on public worship began, we began with Leviticus 10, and we saw Nadab and Abihu struck dead in the public worship of God. And then we heard in 1 Corinthians 11.28, when we considered the Lord's Supper, in the supper many have died as they have partook unworthily. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Public worship is dangerous, friends. In the public worship of God, we come into the presence of Almighty God, which is why we read in 1 Corinthians 14, what happens when an unbeliever has his heart open to perceive that God is here among us? Paul said, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. 1 Corinthians 14.25 That is, someone who has been struck with the presence of God and he has the sense, as Moses did long ago, to fall on his face because God is here. In Hebrews 12, what you are hearing tonight is that Worship in the New Testament is not less dangerous than in the Old Testament, which is what we normally think. It's not less dangerous, first of all, because as I mentioned earlier, because we worship the very same God. Second, New Testament worship is actually more deadly than the Old Testament. That was something, and I appreciate that my worship professor at the seminary would constantly drill this into us, that worship in the New Testament is more deadly than in the Old we're going to exegete, exegete this text more thoroughly when we get to it one day, Lord willing, in Hebrews. But let me sketch out the Apostle's argument for you here so you can track with that. Here he compares the Mosaic administration of the covenant to the gospel administration. He does so by comparing two mountains, Sinai and Sion, the two mountains standing for law and gospel. Sinai, you know very well, as you read Exodus, was a terrible place. You remember, boys and girls, the Lord coming down and descending on the mountain. Uh, the apostle recounts that in verses 18 to 20. Listen to what it says. The trumpet blasting, the fire burning, the blackness, darkness, and tempest, the threat of stoning if you come close to the mountain. Why? Because God's holy presence was there among men. And the people as sinners would die if they drew near his holy presence. Uh, you remember in Isaiah 6, here is a holy man, a prophet of God. He cried before the presence of God, woe is unto me for I am a man of unclean lips. A prophet. And in the like manner here in Exodus, we find that the people cried out to Moses, right? What did they cry out? Do not let us come near to God. <laughs> and here, what do we see of Moses? The text says, Moses quivered. In view of God's presence, he said, I exceedingly fear and quake. That is what 
man ought to sense when he is in the presence of a holy God. And that is Sinai. That is the law. And the law of God convicts us as sinners of the holiness of God. His burning indignation and wrath against it shown in the commandments of God. But the apostle here doesn't leave us at Sinai. He reminds us that if you are in Christ, you come to another mountain, heavenly Mount Sion, in verses 22 to 24. Uh, This heavenly city is called the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. In verse 23, it is identified as the church, the general assembly and church of the firstborn. So boys and girls, some of you sometimes have a question. When Why do we sing of Jerusalem and why do we sing of Zion in the psalm book? What are we singing of that place in the Middle East? No, we are singing of heavenly Jerusalem and we're singing of heavenly Zion, the city of the living God, of which Zion was just typological. What the apostle says here, though, is because of Jesus Christ, you can draw near, you can draw near to God, unlike Israel at Sinai, For one reason, because of the mediator between God and man. Unlike Moses who quaked, verse 24 we read, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Because of Jesus Christ and him alone, you can draw into the heavenlies through his blood. There are wonderful and glorious things to behold in this text in the gospel, And I look forward to preaching it in its many dimensions one day. But today, for our theme of public worship, I want you to understand this basic truth in the gospel, that with greater privileges in the gospel, you are actually to have a greater sense of reverence than the Israelites did at Sinai. Because in public worship, you do not come to Sinai, but you come to Sion. And how? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the death of of the testator, through the death of the Son of God. And that should cause you to not come lightly, but to see that the terror of Sinai was was fixed upon Jesus Christ. And how dare I come into God's presence irreverently, knowing that to save me, God had to strike down His own Son. And you don't draw onto a mountain on earth. You draw into a heavenly place in public worship. At Sinai, God comes down to earth. But at Sion, Jesus lifts us into heaven. And that is both a beautiful and terrible place to be. Consider how glorious a place it is in the text. It is the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, an innumerable company of angels, the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Public worship is a holy time and place. You're drawn into heavenly Jerusalem. It draws you into communion with the entirety of the church, militant and triumphant. It draws you into the presence you see here of holy angels. And what are the holy angels doing, if you know anything of the Bible? What are they doing right now? They are shielding their faces and their feet, and they cry night and day, what? Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. What do you pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That as, as our catechism explains, as the angels are constant in heaven serving the Lord, we would be too. And so that their reverence would be our reverence as well in the presence of God. 
And we truly do. This text is teaching us this. We enter into the presence of the object of the angel's worship and adoration. That is who is here right now, friends. God Almighty, judge of all. Isn't that what he's called in this text? God, the judge of all. In public worship, you come to the supreme judge of all, and he's not just the judge of those people out there. He's also the judge of you and of me. He is here judging us. You remember in Hebrews 4.12, we heard that God, through his word, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You come in public worship. He is judging the thoughts and intentions of your heart. He is judging you right this moment. Are you taking every thought captive for the Lord? That is what our calling is now. And you see what he says here. When the judge speaks from heaven through Jesus Christ, in verse 25, the commandment is what? See that you refuse not him that speaketh. That who, who speaks. When the word is read and the word is preached. You heard that in Luke's gospel not long ago. It is God who speaks, not me. If these were my words, then you would have nothing really to do with them. But so long as they are God's words and they are faithfully preached, you have to hear this as the voice of God. And what is the warning after that in verse 25? For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Friends, this is that lesser to greater argument, right? If Sion was terrible and the voice that was coming was from earth, how much worse is it to refuse he who is speaking from heaven? That's who we hear from in uh, in our public worship. We hear from God from heaven. The Spirit of the Lord has been poured out in greater fullness in the gospel era, and you hear God speak to you in public worship. And so if Sinai was terrifying, and it was, how much more terrifying should it be for us in Sion? Sion is a more holy place than Sinai. That's the argument here. You come directly to God through the mediator, judge of all, who speaks to us by way of the Holy Spirit from heaven. But why, you know, you think about this, boys and girls, you might have been more terrified of Sinai than what you are dealing with right now. And you have to ask why. Why is that? It's because carnal men perceived God carnally at Sinai. But it takes faith to perceive God spiritually at Sion. That's why the Bible says you walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, you heard the trumpet blast. You saw the fire and the tempest and the, the smoke and the lightning and the thunder and all of that. And your eyes perceive all of that. And you see something of the glory of God and the terror of God. But right now, friends, God is no less present. And the argument is he is more present than there. It takes faith to perceive God that way. You're not going to see it by listening to me. You're going to have to perceive it, perceive it by faith until the day when faith makes way for sight in the beatific vision. And this all hinges on the nature and character of God. And I am convinced and convicted myself as well that the reason we are so lax in worship is because we just don't know God. We don't know God. We don't know how he truly is. God, judge of all, a consuming fire. 
We don't see him as worthy of reverence and awe and godly fear. We don't know God. That's why there's no reverence. So let's remember who God is in our second head, that we might cultivate reverence at public worship. As I said, the great reason for a lack of reverence is that we do not fear God. Look at verse 28. You are told to serve him with reverence and godly fear. Reverence in public worship goes hand in glove with godly fear. You don't have reverence just by saying, well, I'm just going to be quiet and I'm going to pay more attention. No, its root is godly fear. Godly fear of God. That's where reverence begins. But in order to have godly fear, you must know something about God that would provoke such fear, right? As I said, Job 22.21 says, Acquaint now thyself with him. Can you say you are acquainted with God? Can you say with Paul, For I know whom I have believed. And truly so, not a vain imagination of a God of your making, like a golden calf, but who God is from his Bible. Do you know him from the Bible? If you did, if you truly did, would you not understand that he is worthy of the greatest reverence and the greatest godly fear? He is called a consuming fire whose fire of holy indignation burns against sin. Uh, Jacob called uh, him the fear of Isaac in Genesis 31-42. A patriarch called him the fear of Isaac. And why did the early church grow Why did the early church turn the world upside down? They walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Acts 9.31 You know why the church is continuing to retreat? It has no fear of God. It fears man. So let me ask you, are you gripped Christian? I'm asking the Christian, not the unbeliever. Are you gripped with the fear of God? A sense of the Almighty. You know, if our faith is in Jesus Christ, let's understand this rightly, we do not fear God will condemn us, but you're still to fear him, and you're still to reverence him. In Jesus, yes, you call God our Father, but what was the penetrating question we considered for so many months in Malachi 1.6? A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? He said, you call me father, but do you reverence me? You say, you call me Lord, but do you fear me reverently in public worship? How many people are going to say, Lord, Lord, on that day and had no fear of God? They will have the fear of God after that when he says, depart from me. Have the fear of God now. You know, you say you have faith, good. But has your faith truly acquainted you with the true God? You know, why do the demons, one of the reasons why the demons believe and tremble is because they know how fearsome God is. And while we do not have that slavish kind of fear the demons do, we should know what the apostle tells us in verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. And that is why we hear, serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. You know, I I would suggest that if we took this verse and we did the sort of the man on the street kind of interview and you asked random Christians throughout the visible church, is this text in the Old Testament or the New Testament? I believe most of the visible church would tell you, oh, that sounds very much like the Old Testament. That is the New Testament. 
in the book that proclaims the greater glories of the new covenant. That is why we hear, serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. By faith, he must be to us a consuming fire worthy of fear, awe, and reverence. And forget about other assemblies, right? You you might be, and this is our sinful tendency now, thinking about all the goofiness in the visible church. Forget about the charismatics. Forget about the megachurches. Let us ask ourselves, is our worship filled with reverence and godly fear? Is my heart, is your heart, filled with reverence and godly fear? Notice, I want to press this deeper. Because there is this disconnect between the fear of God and the gospel. Notice how very particular the apostle addresses God as a consuming fire. He is called our God. Our God is a consuming fire. He is speaking to Christian people who have claimed the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, our God, our covenant God is a consuming fire. He is not speaking to unbelievers. He does not say to the unbeliever, though this is true, God is a consuming fire. But to the ones who are inside the church. Our God is a consuming fire. These are things that Nadab and Abihu found out too late. This is something that Uzzah found out too late when he put his hand on the ark. David learned that really too late when Uzzah died. This is something that those in Corinth who died after partaking of the supper unworthily learned too late. Will you learn it? Will I learn it in a timely way? Or will it be too late for us as well? Even if you have saving faith, like those in Corinth, you might be severely chastened by the Lord, our consuming fire for irreverence, because they were irreverent in coming to the supper, many fell asleep, that is, died. Consuming fire. And I, as we long for revival, and we long for the presence of God, the presence of God in our assembly may never be what it ought to be in 1 Corinthians 14, where unbelievers fall down on their face saying God is with us of a truth if we do not have a holy fear ourselves as worshipers. Instead, you might find the Lord say that it is Ichabod that is on the door. Yes, you have all the right elements, but your heart was far from me. Why should God be present? Just think of this. Why should God be present here when there is no fear of God among his people? Friends, again, in our view of our series on gospel worship, let me say something I think we in the Reformed Presbyterian Church need to hear. It's not enough to look at our order of worship and rest in it being thoroughly scriptural. Yes, we have the right elements we offer to the Lord, and all of it comes from the word I trust. But if there's no reverence and adoration for God in the heart, does it really matter at all? It doesn't. The reason we are supposed to give God what he wants in worship is because we have a reverent fear of God. And that fear does not end when we have the right elements of worship. It must carry into the actions of worship itself. When the apostle tells us that our God is a consuming fire, you may not realize this. He is citing Deuteronomy 4.24. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. He is jealous for his name to be reverenced, to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Isaiah 42, 8. 
And he certainly is not about to give his glory and worship to you and me. You have to understand that this time, this time is not about you or me. It is about Jehovah. He is jealous. That's why the second commandment regulates worship with these words, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And so what the apostle is doing here in verse 29 is he is really just impressing on us the second commandment by tying these texts together. Our God is a consuming fire, jealous, Deuteronomy 4 and Exodus 20. God is here now to be revered. He is not here for your amusement, your entertainment, or just to learn a little bit more about the Bible. That is not first and foremost why you are here. He is not here first and foremost that your family would become better Christians. That is not the primary reason. And many of us become idolaters in the public worship of God. He is here to be revered and reverenced by you and to be glorified by you. If you are unconverted, you must be converted not only to be saved. That's a secondary thing. The primary purpose for your conversion is higher, to reverence, adore, and worship God with a godly fear. That's the aim of your salvation as well, Christian, to reverence and worship God. And for you who are saved, the Bible says that far from making you lax in worship, your gratitude for being saved by Jesus, by Jesus, you think of this, Jesus being consumed by God's wrath should drive you to a greater sense of reverence and godly fear. Verse 28 is where you find that truth. Where the apostle says, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Um, you might know that in the Greek language, the word grace doesn't always mean the grace of God. Oftentimes it means thankfulness. That's the sense the word conveys here. Boys and girls, you might still hear this. And this confused me before I was a Christian when uh, Christian people would say, let us say grace. What they are saying is, let us give a word of thanks to the Lord for the meal. And that's the sense here that the apostle has, the Holy Ghost has here. Let us have thanks to God for receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us be thankful to Jesus Christ for a full salvation. And so our thankfulness drives us to have reverence and godly fear for God. And when you think of the gospel, that my Lord Jesus Christ, the one that I adore, was consumed by the fire of God's wrath for my sin, that if it were not for the love of God sending Jesus to die for me, I would be eternally consumed in hell for my sin because the wrath of God would rest on me. When I think that I had a just condemnation before the Lord, but God, the consuming fire, consumed His Son in my place, should I not have grace should I not have thanks? Should I not think, how do I serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear? When I think on the cross, I should not do anything more first than quake. That was what I deserved. You need to be acquainted with God. You need to be acquainted with His Son. You need to be acquainted with His Spirit. And you need to be acquainted with all of the gospel, not just its saving benefits. You need to be acquainted with heavenly Zion and you will find a greater reverence for God in public worship. You need to know who God is better through his word. You need to meditate on his attributes. Open your confession of faith to the second chapter. Consider the scripture proofs for God. Be acquainted with God lest you die and you find out that you never knew him at all.
Such inward actions of the soul, knowing God, are necessary to worship God reverently. As I said, reverence begins in the soul. It does not matter how you dress on one level. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Or how closely you pay attention or how loud you sing if you have no reverence in the heart for God through faith in Jesus. But if you have reverence for God in the heart, then will your outward actions, this is why Jesus said, what's the point in cleaning up the outside of the cup if the inside isn't cleansed? If you don't have reverence in the heart, then of course your outward actions are going to be irreverent. But if you have reverence in the heart, then all of your actions in public worship would be consumed with the thought of God, the consuming fire who consumed his son for me. How I must pay attention to what the Lord wants in worship. And so, knowing we are to reverence God, let us now conclude with our conduct in public worship, which is our final applicatory heading. So I've laid down some foundations for reverence for God in public worship. Let me now move to more specifics when it comes to our conduct in public worship. Specific applications of the 89th Psalm, which says, and we sang, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Some of what I'm going to say might sound very condescending to you. That's fine. Specific applications are sometimes very, very condescending. And if you take offense at me for what I say, that's not going to bother me at all. My concern is that your conduct offends God. And at the end of the day, friends, you need to take up what I say with God, the judge of all. In the grand scheme of things, I am just God's servant, his minister, and I remember the words of Paul, for do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Galatians 1.10. I also want to preface what I'm about to say by saying I'm aware many of you were raised in an environment that did not show reverence for God or the things of God. Some of us have come, like I have, out of paganism. Some of us have come from churches where worship was a free-for-all, where the chaos of 1 Corinthians 14, you open it up and you say, that's my church. That was a portrait of your congregation. Or where the service time was a time for the pastor to make jokes and amuse you for about 30 minutes. Or in some contemporary Reformed churches, it strikes closer to home, where the public meeting was just the lecture time. Just time to learn more about the Bible and is not seen as worship where the preaching is not understood as, see that ye refuse not him that speaketh. So I realize that, and I praise God, first of all, this congregation is in many ways a series of first-generation Christians or people who are being converted out of paganism. That is a huge blessing that not many Reformed churches get to experience. So I remember that our behavior is sometimes attributed to a prevailing culture of irreverence, but we must put it away. We are meeting with a consuming fire. We're meeting with God, the judge of all. And our behavior, think of this. Here is God, the judge of all. Your behavior in our public meeting must be greater than you being summoned to the bench of an earthly judge. If an earthly judge summoned you to his bench, you would have a sense of fear and awe. And you would be afraid in a sense. Our behavior in our public meetings must be greater than meeting an earthly judge. And as we consider our prior heading, the more acquainted you are with God, the more self-evident I think these applications become. In any case, that said, let us apply reverence to our public meeting. 
And let me give you seven points of application this afternoon. And remember, I am preaching to our congregation. I am not preaching to whoever might be listening on Sermon Audio, first and foremost. The first application is very simple. Be in worship. It's no good to say, when I am in worship, then I will be reverent. Yet you show up sparingly to worship the Lord. Public worship This side of glory, and you need to think of it in this way, this has been very helpful for me. I say, because this is God's truth, public worship, this side of glory, is our most important meeting on the calendar. Now, if there are health reasons for being absent, that's one thing, right? We pray often for those who are unable to be here because of health issues. No one is faulting you for that. The Lord desires mercy and not sacrifice in such cases. But other than that, will you not meet with God to give him the glory that he is due. When he speaks, as he speaks now, will you refuse him who speaketh by not even showing up to hear what he has to say? When he is praised, will it be your voice that is silent? Worship is about giving adoration and homage to God, and it is not optional for your life. That is why two chapters back, Paul preached, we must not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Be in worship to adore the God of heaven, judge of all the consuming fire. Our second application is, be prepared for public worship. It means as well that you will have to be well rested to meet with God. You know, in the Bible, right, you read the Gospels, and what do you hear the day before the Sabbath day is called? It is the day of preparation. It's the day where we prepare to meet God. On Saturday, see the Sabbath as a delight. It's coming. My meeting with a consuming fire is coming. With God, the judge of all, my Savior, that meeting is coming. And so you must prepare yourself spiritually to reverence Him. This is what I do. On Saturday evenings, after time and family worship especially, I make sure to shut off the world. Sometimes you may have texted me late on a Saturday night and I do not respond. It's because I've shut off my phone. On Saturday evenings, spend devotional time with the Lord to prepare to meet with God, a consuming fire. When I go to sleep, my last thought has been on God. And when I awake, my first thought on the Sabbath morning is on God. And I awake early, I do this every day, but especially on the Lord's Day, I awake super early to go to my devotions, to prepare my heart to meet with God and to prepare my house as well to meet with God. Your heart should move on the Lord's Day with the anticipation of the 95th Psalm to your own house. Remember this morning, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Think of the 95th Psalm for your household. Oh, come. Let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. For the Lord is what? A great God and a great king above all gods. If you would prepare your house in this way, let me say again, you would show up on time, wouldn't you, for public worship? And to be on time for public worship actually means to be early for public worship. Pagans have told me that to be on time is to be late, and to be 10 minutes early is to be on time. But I believe it takes more than 10 minutes for most of us, the side of glory, to prepare our hearts to meet with God. I really do. 
I need more than 10 minutes to settle my heart for public worship, so come early. And when it comes to our conversations before the service begins, you need to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit, which is temperance and self-control. The Sabbath is about the public meeting of God foremost. Keep your eye on the clock. You should have, you should not need me to remind you when worship begins. Almost all of you here are adults. I'm sorry if this sounds condescending, and I don't mean it to be. Take it in the spirit intended, out of love. You know what time worship begins. And if you were really meeting an important person, you would be early to meet with him. You meet with God. You know worship begins at 10.30 a.m. and 2.15 p.m. sharp. You should have enough sense about you to use the restroom before then. Again, I don't mean to be condescending, but maybe it has to be said that way. You should know to finish your conversations with one another. You should be able to say, you should be spiritually exercised this much to say to one another, at least 10 minutes before, let us now go and meet God. Yes, do prepare to meet with God, the judge of all, before worship begins. Because to go from conversations out there to meeting God in here is like slamming a car into gear. Going 5,000 RPM and slamming it into drive or first gear. It's a shock. And you're often unready to meet with God, judge of all, a consuming fire. I think of myself, one of the hardest things that it will be for me to face when I come before Christ's judgment seat, one of the hardest things that it will be for me to hear from my Lord is how poorly I thought on him in my life. You couldn't come to worship me on time. You had such few thoughts about me. I wasn't present at the forefront of your mind in every conversation. I'm going to hear that. And it's going to be a very solemn thing. So be ready to meet with God, judge of all the consuming fire. Third is be attentive in public worship. You need to be focused on all the elements of worship, the task at hand, because being present is not just about being seated. Public worship is not a time to slumber before the presence of the Holy One of Israel. The Lord Jesus himself chastised his own disciples. What? Could ye not watch with me for one hour? Our morning service is 90 minutes long. The afternoon service is 75 minutes long. I've looked at this. Boys and girls, how do I know you can be attentive for 90 minutes? Because the world can capture your attention for that long. Do you know why children's movies are 90 minutes long? That's the benchmark, because they know they can captivate you that long. You should be able to be captivated in the public worship of God, children. I also would then think that if children can be captivated for 90 minutes, adults should be able to meet with God at least that long. And remember, when the Lord speaks, refuse not him that speaketh, especially in the preaching and reading of the word. If you need to take notes, take notes. If notes are a distraction, just listen. But what you must do is you must take every thought captive in the worship of God. You are called to have mastery over yourself for the sake of Christ, for the sake of meeting God. In the prayers, you know, historically our prayers aren't very long, though for the contemporary church they might feel that way. But you are communicating with the God of heaven. You are laying up before his throne of grace so many great petitions I trust. We are bringing our petitions before the judge of all. Parents, 
Teach your children to pray, even at the youngest ages. I know a two-year-old can stand up, they can clasp their eyes, they can bow their heads, and pay attention during the prayer time. You have to train them that this is what we do in prayer. This is what we do. And in your praise, you are to adore the Lord of heaven by praising him as you will for eternity. I've started to send out the Psalms around Thursday, uh, so you can prepare to praise God on the Lord's Day. To better have your heart and mind meditated on the text that you might praise him, you might know the words of the psalm, and if there's any difficulties there, you might open up a commentary or a Bible and, and investigate more. That way, friends, you know, as you prepare to meet with the judge, right, you think about this. It's just like meeting with any earthly judge. You would prepare to meet with him, prepare to praise the Lord before public worship. And what a sweet thing that is to meditate. If you really truly adore your God, to anticipate public worship. Let me look over the order of worship. Let me look at the texts. Let me look at the Psalms that I will then get to exercise in worship. Our fourth point of application is to be mindful. Each of us contributes or detracts from reverence in the public worship of God. We are an assembly together, not individual worshipers all in an island. Not only can our conduct be irreverent and damage our own soul, but it can have an ill effect on the entire assembly and the entire worship of God. You know, and these are just things that I've noticed. If you're constantly rummaging through your stuff, and I've had to talk to some of my children about this, so if you're constantly rummaging through your stuff, and you're walking in and out, in and out, and in and out, and you have to go use the restroom all the time, and get water. Not only are you demonstrating irreverence for God, barring a medical condition, of course. Not only are you demonstrating irreverence for God, you are causing others to lose sight of God as well by being distracted. Men, women, and children who do not take care of their business before service are demonstrating irreverence for God. At the end of the day, it's not me. I mean, I can see you doing all of this. That's fine. And it doesn't really, at the end of the day, the provocation is against God, and you have to see it that way. But whatever I think, that's immaterial. You have to be worried about what God thinks. But if I am provoked for the honor and glory of God, then I hope you would be too. And when it comes to your children, we want your children here. You heard that this morning. They need to be here. And you need to make sure that they are here. But also be teaching them. Be mindful when you, my son or daughter, are irreverent and you are distracting others. Teach them that this is a reverent time for God. And that is such a blessing if you would teach them that at the earliest age. It's not even, worship is not just about our family sitting together and worshiping God as as some sort of wholesome picture of what people do. It is us giving glory and homage to God. It's not time for us to go up and down the aisle and play peekaboo. It might sound funny, but this is stuff that grieves the heart of God. Teach them, my son, my daughter, we meet a consuming fire. Some of you might think your child's antics are cute. But in public worships, their antics are not cute. Because when they take others' focus from God, you provoke God's jealousy, and it doesn't matter if it is your child or not. God is a consuming fire. God is to be worshipped, not your child. And if your child is upset after a reasonable amount of time, right, calm them out outside 
and bring them back in as soon as possible. In every way, we don't want the chaos of 1 Corinthians 14 to describe our assembly. The focus is God and not us. So be mindful of your conduct in the public worship of God. Our fifth point, dress modestly to come before the Lord. I'm not saying men have to wear suits, women have to wear their best dress to worship, but I'm talking about immodesty in public worship, and that's a terrible thing. I have even witnessed uh, a minister's wife dress in a way that is utterly shocking. I have heard some of you speak about former elders' wives, and not anyone here, um, in a way that is shocking as well, that draws attention to themselves and tempts men to break the seventh commandment in the heart. Ladies, you know full well that the way that you dress has an effect on men. I don't have to tell you that. You need to aim for modesty in the public worship of God. Some men come to public worship unkempt in their appearance. Beloved, if you look like you have gotten up at 10.30 in the morning, you probably have, and you're not prepared to meet with God. That's just uh, something that anybody can notice. Um, If a man is coming into the assembly and it looks like he just woke up, he probably has. I severely doubt you have prepared to meet with God. Again, I'm not talking about the kind of dress you're wearing, but you know when a person is not prepared to meet with God. You are both soul and body. Your body and your care for it reflects your stewardship of God's gift. So dress modestly in the public worship of God. Our sixth point of application is, and this is something we need to cultivate more, we need to be reverent after meeting with God. Do not just bolt for the door or switch back into the world. You know, it's amazing. It's shocking how quickly our conversations can go from hearing God, the consuming fire, and now suddenly we're just talking about everything and everything else under the sun. There should be a sobriety that carries with you outside public worship. Our time in worship should affect us outside of worship. I have been to congregations that are very spiritually exercised. And one of the things that I just love I preached at some congregations like this. You know what happens? After the benediction, there are many people just sitting in their seats doing business with God. If you have heard God call you to repentance, why are you running out of the door? Why are you not doing a work with God? Why are you not praising the Lord as you've heard the glory of Jesus Christ for a sinner like you? Why is it that when heaven has been opened before you and you think on the beatific vision, you want to then go and talk about a sports game? Spiritually exercised people will still be doing business with God after the public meeting. Something of our conduct, if we have met with God Almighty, should not something of our conduct reflect that as we get up from public worship? So be reverent after meeting the God of heaven. And lastly, Be in devotional exercises the rest of the week. This is part of preparation. You need to be in devotional exercises with God outside of public worship. And you need to make those devotional exercises times of reverence and awe for God. Because the more that you worship God outside of public meetings, the more you're acquainted with God in your private devotions, the more you are prepared to meet with him. And if your private devotions, if the secret place that Jesus has told you that you must be in is full of notifications from your phone, and it's full of checking email and doing every other thing under the sun, you are not really exercising yourself devotionally. 
tune the world out completely when you worship God. Same goes with your families. When you, you worship God as a family, you need to tell your children and yourself too, this is not a time for, for joking around and being irreverent, but we must have a reverence. We are meeting with the God of heaven. And the more that you are reverent in the week, the more you will be acquainted with God and the more you will be prepared to meet with God, the consuming fire. Teach your children. Family worship is not playtime. And they will find that public worship is not playtime then. Well, as we close our time, I'll just leave that with you again. Be acquainted with your God and fear him. Have grace. Be thankful. Thank the God of heaven. His mercy endureth forever. Remember what he has done for you in Jesus Christ, whose blood has opened heaven for you. You know, if you cannot find it in your heart, I'll just leave it here. If you cannot find it in your heart to be reverent and have godly fear for the Lord after he had sent his son to die for you, I think that might be a grave warning to you of your possible eternal destination. Not the place where God is worshipped day and night, but the place where God, the consuming fire, consumes sinners. I don't warn you lightly, but remind you once again, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. May God help us all. Amen. Please rise for prayer. Forgive us, O God. Forgive us for our lack of reverence for you, our creator, our savior, the great judge of all, the consuming fire, who has spared us who believe the eternal torments of hell that we justly deserve, and yet we often treat you so poorly, Father. We go days sometimes without a thought of God. We rarely find thankfulness in our hearts. We have a shocking lack of reverence for you. Would you revive us, your people, Father? Oh, those stories of great revivals in the past, where we hear that even after the public meeting of God, little children would walk outside and sit and talk to one another about God. We long for that, Father. We long for the day when the Lord of heaven is reverenced, we often preach to the unbeliever, be reconciled to God, and yet so often we have no fear of you. Forgive us, Father, and give us gospel fruit as the fear of God increases. Give us the fear of God that we may walk in the fear of God, that we may grow and multiply as the church in Acts as we walk in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Would you do this not even for the church's sake, but for the sake of your great glory and honor, for you are worthy of praise. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.